Well, good afternoon, everyone. Hope you got a little bit of something to eat, a little bit of sleep. Uh, I'm excited this afternoon. I don't have a whole lot to say other than welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is our last session for our Recalibrate weekend. Uh, we'll mention at the end today, but Southwestern Adventist University's Week of Prayer is coming up this week that Ty is also going to be speaking for. So if you haven't gotten enough today, this week, it's, the schedule's a little bit weird because of class schedule and everything, but if you want to write this down real quick, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11.20 a.m. So stay 11. Let's just go 11, 11 o'clock. Monday, Wednesday, Friday in this space, Ty will be speaking. And also Tuesday, Thursday at 1 p.m. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11.20, Tuesday, Thursday at 1 p.m. It will also be streamed on the university YouTube page. So you'll be able to access that. I'm gonna go ahead and open up with a word of prayer and then Ty, turn it over to you. Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for today. As we come again to, to understand from your words what you have for us, would you open our ears, our hearts, and our minds. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. Oh look, you came. <laughs> This is the meeting after lunch, you know, right? Depending on what you had for lunch, what I'm about to say may sound like truth or heresy. So if you have to, sit up a little straighter, breathe a little deeper, because this one is titled The Big Picture. Um, I have this friend, and his wife uh, brought out a platter. I came over to visit, walked in the door, and uh, she brought this platter out. And she said, look, Ty, I made bite-sized blueberry muffins. Would you like one? And I said, actually, yes. So I took one and I inserted it, the totality of it, in my mouth. Chewed it up, swallowed. She just stood there looking at me like something odd had happened. Would you like another? I said, sure. So I took another one shoved it in my mouth, swallowed, it was gone. She said, Ty, what are you doing? I said, I'm eating blueberry muffins. She said, you're putting the whole thing in your mouth all at once. I said, did you not say they are bite-sized blueberry muffins? That's what you called them. She said, yes, but no. <laughs> Multiple bites are required. Okay, show me how it's done. And she took one of these bite-sized blueberry muffins, and she, I don't know, 20 nibbles or something to get rid of that thing. It was boring just watching it. I was like, no, I'll show you how it's done. And I took another one, put it in my mouth. I say all of that to say this. Um, this time together right now is for big bite people. There are two kinds of people in the world, big bite people and little bite people. This is called the big picture because we're about to take a big bite of scripture. And that means that you're going to have to bring all of your frontal lobe to the task. You need to bring your mind. You need to bring your heart. You need to track with the information and the language because we're building a picture. We're building a big picture, a tapestry, a puzzle. You need all of the pieces in place linguistically, conceptually for the punchline to make, what do you think I'm going to say? Sense. Do you want it to make sense? I want it to make sense. And because we want it to make sense, we're going to take charge of our minds and try to track with this big bite of information. Okay, so everything that I've said so far in our time together in the previous four sessions has all been built on the premise that God is a social unit. Said another way, God is a relational dynamic. Said yet another way, God is love. To say God is love is to say that God is relational by nature, so that if you strip all of reality away from God, all of created things, humans, angels, time, space, matter, if you strip away the entire material universe, and all you have left is God and God alone, you are pondering a relationship. 
God is not a solitary self. God is not a rigid singularity. God is a relational dynamic. God is love. God is outgoing, self-giving, passionate love. God thinks thoughts and feels feelings. God is love. And if God is love, and if love is by its, its very nature other-centered, there must have always been, in God's reality, some other to love. Are you still with me? God is a relational dynamic. Now, probably the most known, well-known Bible verse, and one that poses a problem to the premise of the last four sessions. Again, everything I've said so far is on the premise that God is love, that love is other-centered, and therefore God is, in God's own godness, a relational dynamic. But, but here, in Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Apparently, God has a son? An only begotten son? Born? The word begotten means born. If God is father, is there a mother involved? Are we dealing here with literal, concrete descriptions of the origins of this being ontologically in eternity past? Are we dealing with metaphors? Are we dealing with a narrative? Well, what genre of literature is this? Does this text occur in a vacuum? Is there some narrative that constitutes its context? Is the language before us language that emerged right here in this text? when John wrote it, with no antecedent data? Or is all the language in this text drawn from the biblical narrative that has gone before, and therefore it can make sense only when read in the narrative context in which it occurs? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay. As a little bit of an introduction as we unpack this text, you and I need to understand that we're Westerners, most of us, all of us, even if we're not from Western culture. Western culture has academically, intellectually, rationally permeated the world. So all of us are Westerners in our cultural, historic, and philosophical outlook on reality. We're like fish who don't know we're wet right? We're, we're just saturated with Western culture, and that Western culture is decidedly Greek in its orientation. Hellenistic. Hellenistic means Greek. In this remarkable little volume regarding the world in which we find ourselves, we discover that William Barrett suggests what many before him and after him have observed. So this is an observation. He's not making this up. This is the fact of the matter. That Hebraism, that is the Bible, the Hebrew narrative, Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, Solomon, Christ. Hebraism and Hellenism, that's the Greek philosophical way of looking at reality, metaphysics, ontology, that Hebraism and Hellenism between these two points of influence moves the world. Everybody is always in the process of thinking Greek patterns of thought or Hebrew patterns of thought. Now, the only way for a Westerner to think Hebrew is for you and for me to deliberately immerse ourselves in the biblical narrative, to become Hebrew. Now, if you're a Christian, and specifically if you're a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, whether you know it or not, you have bought into a Hebrew perspective. You are Hebrew, philosophically, philosophically, 
narratively, you think Hebrew thoughts. Just the fact that you keep the Sabbath is a very Hebrew thing to do and has Hebrew origins in the biblical narrative. So the Hebrew way of thinking, now listen very carefully, the Hebrew way of thinking is specifically, decidedly narrative. It is a story. That's what we're gonna be looking at, by the way, in the Arise Intensive this coming weekend. The whole curriculum of that weekend that David and I will be teaching is called The Story. That's the curriculum that we will be studying. Now, as Hebrews, and we are Hebrews, theologically, as Hebrews, we think, or ought to think, narratively. The Bible is a narrative. The Bible is not a theological encyclopedia. The Bible is not a proof text manual. The Bible is not a systematic theology. The Bible is not a belief system. The Bible is not a list of moral rules. Now, the Bible includes moral rules. It is not that. It includes moral rules that occur naturally, organically within its narrative, within its worldview. And the same with systematic theology. You can draw systematic theology from scripture, but you're creating systematic theology from the text. Systematic theology is not organic to the text. So the Bible is not any of that. It's not an encyclopedia, it's not a systematic theo theology, it's not a proof text. The Bible's a narrative. The Bible's a story. It has characters, and each character is interacting with other characters, and the character narratives, the personality profiles all intersect, and they all move in a narrative arc and work together to create a punchline. And the punchline is Messiah. The punchline is Christ. The punchline of scripture is the Hebrew promised covenantal son of God. We need to think Hebraic, not Hellenistic. So let's look at what that would basically unfold like. The Bible is a relational narrative. It's not a metaphysical philosophy. So when you read the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, in the Hellenistic or the Greek framework, the metaphysical framework, the natural reflex question is to look at that language in isolation, only begotten son of God. Oh, so sometime back in eternity past, long, long ago, this, this Jesus person was somehow begotten by the Father and came into existence sometime in the past. The Bible knows nothing about that way of thinking. The Bible knows nothing about some time in the far distant past when God split off a part of himself to create some other lesser God. This is pagan philosophy. This is not Hebrew thinking. When the Bible speaks of the only begotten Son of God, it is not telling us something about the ontological origins of Jesus. It is telling us about his covenantal identity within the biblical narrative. Let me prove this to you. Let me, let me unpack this for you. The Bible discloses the character of God, not the nature of God. Listen, you don't know what God is. I don't know what God is. We're finite created beings. And the question, what is God, is outside of our intellectual orbit. We have literally no idea. The close we, closest we can get is Jesus says, God is a spirit. We don't know what God is, but we do know who God is. There's a difference between the what and the who. The what is the nature of God. Don't know. The who, how does God think and feel and behave? What kind of person is God? This is the character of God. So the Bible is a narrative. The biblical narrative unfolds something like this. So track with me as we just build 
the story. So in Genesis chapter 1, God, Elohim, the plural name for God, says in verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us, God is an us, and let us make man in our image. God is an us and an our, according to our likeness, and let them, so God is an us and an our, God's image is a them. God is a relational dynamic, so when God creates God's image, it's a relational dynamic. Are you still with me? And let them have, what's that word? Dominion over all the earth. This is fascinating. Dominion. God created the man and the woman, and he delegated authority to them. He gave them dominion over planet earth. Psalm 115 verse 16 says it this way. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to human beings. This is delegation language. God is not a micromanaging control freak. God created the earth, he created the man and the woman, and he said, let them run the joint. Let them have dominion over the earth, over all of it. They're stewards of the planet, this territory in God's vast universe. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. He rules there with angels surrounding him in the throne of the universe. He created the earth and the man and the woman, he said, you guys are in charge. He gave them the earth. He is the sovereign, ultimate creator and king of the universe, but he delegated authority, like you gave your teenager control over their bedroom, which was not a good idea, by the way. But you delegated that space to them, right? The house is yours, but you gave them a space that they could govern themselves. God is a delegator by nature. God gives agency. God created the world. He gave them authority over the world. So God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The man and the woman have charge of the earth. Now watch what happens. This man, fast forward to the New Testament, to the genealogy of Jesus as it is rendered by Luke. And every human person is the son of some other human father. Reasoning all the way back, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. David was the son of Jesse. So-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of who? God. Here's our language. Son of God. We're trying to figure out what does the Bible mean when it says Jesus is the son of God. Here's the origin of the language. The first son of God in the biblical narrative is Adam. Adam is the son of God. In what sense is Adam the son of God? Well, God created Adam and Eve, and then Adam begot a what? A son with no small amount of help from Eve. I don't know why she's not mentioned here. In his own likeness after his image. So we have this as a foundation for the biblical narrative. Creation, procreation. This is, this is one of the early mechanisms involved in the narrative of Scripture that unfolds through the entire text from Genesis to Revelation. God creates the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. Watch this, watch this. And Adam is the son of God. Every child after that is the son or daughter of who? Adam and Eve, and by procreation, by extension, sons and daughters of God. So think about it this way. Adam came fresh from the creator's word, hands, mind. The first created man. God created him. Adam doesn't have a human father. He was created. Does he have a belly? Did he have a belly button? I don't know. Maybe God put it there for aesthetics, because it would look weird if he didn't have one. Adam didn't have a mom. He didn't have a dad. God created Adam. God created Eve. Are you still with me? Then Adam and Eve procreate in their image. Yes? As we just read. And if the fall had never occurred, what would have happened? Think about this. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, let's just, let's just move through this. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, would they still be alive? 
Yes, according to Romans, death entered through sin. If sin had never entered, death wouldn't have entered. Adam and Eve would still be alive. Approximately, according to biblical reckoning, how old would they be? About 6,000 years old. How old would they look? Like 26. Because entropy would not have entered the picture. No aging process would have ever set in motion. And who would they be to us? Well, where would they live? We think they'd live somewhere over by Baghdad. That's where Eden probably was. So they'd live over there and there'd be all of us, unfallen world. And who would they be to us? They would be our great, 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 totally great grandma and grandpa. And they would be the representative heads of the human race. But when Adam and Eve sinned, something happened. Sonship is the means by which image is created and then procreated. That was the original plan. God created his image in Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve procreate the image of God in their offspring. That was the plan. But the image of God was marred through sin. The fall was something like a loss of God's image in the original humans, Adam and Eve, and a loss of the capacity to procreate God's image. Now, the sons and daughters of Adam are infected with sin, with the selfishness principle, right? Now we come into the world and we have these impulses toward various degrees of narcissism. We're all self-centered by nature now because we're the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And the character of humanity was polluted at its source. That's a pretty crass way of saying it, but something like that happened. The fall is a loss of the image of God and a loss of the capacity to reproduce the image of God. So watch this. After Adam and Eve sin, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise. God speaks to the serpent, that is to Satan, in the presence of the woman, Eve, Adam as well. And God says, looking at Eve, daughter, I will put enmity, hostility, between, between you, excuse me, let me back up, I messed up. This is God speaking to Adam in the presence, uh, speaking to Satan in the presence of Eve. The address is, the voice of God here is to Satan, the serpent. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, hers. He, now there's a singular he, will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike or bruise or wound his heel. It's quite an image, right? God says to Satan, I'm going to send some singular offspring through the womb of woman into the world. He's going to be born into the world, and he will crush your head under his heel, Satan, and he will be wounded in the process of your defeat. This is the mother of all prophecies. This is, the, this is the first gospel prophecy, the first gospel promise. And it is a prophecy about offspring. Collect the words, the concepts. Okay. Now fast forward to a later time in the biblical narrative where what happened in Eden back in Genesis chapter three, surfaces and we understand the implications. In the book of Job, Job is suffering, and we have this narrative in Job. Now, there was a day when the who, who, everybody, the sons of God, now it's plural, apparently there are other sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Here's some kind of heavenly conclave some kind of heavenly parliament or congress. Who's the one who's convened the meeting? God. God says, 
We're having a meeting. And the sons of God, plural, came from various locations in the universe to present themselves before the Lord. I don't have time to demonstrate this from scripture, but the assumed context here is that we live in a populated universe. Planet Earth is not the only planet with rational, emotional, volitional creatures. According to scripture, God through Christ made the worlds plural, and there are many of them. We don't know how many of them. Paul says there are principalities and powers or rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. There are entirely different population bases that God has made in the universe of unfallen beings living on unfallen planets. And Paul says that our world is a theatron or a theater to them. They're all looking down upon what's happening in this war between good and evil on planet Earth. We've been quarantined from the rest of the universe. We live in a populated universe. There are unfallen worlds that we will have the privilege of visiting sometime in the future. If you are familiar with the writings of Ellen White, you probably have read in early writings where Ellen White had a vision and she says, this is like pages, early writings, 38, 39, 40, right in there. She says, I was taken to a planet with seven moons and I saw good old brother Enoch there. And I said, Enoch, is this your home? And he said, no, my home is the New Jerusalem. I'm just visiting this place. And she said, I saw creatures of all different shapes and sizes bearing the express image of God. In her vision, she visited an unfallen world and Enoch, apparently, Enoch is on holiday on this planet visiting this unfallen world. So we live in a populated universe and there are sons of God, plural, and God calls a meeting and they all come and Satan comes among them. Among who? What's the language? The sons of God. Satan shows up among the who? The sons of God. Why does he show up? Well, that's what God wants to know. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Not what are you doing here? It's a point of origin question. From what part of my vast universe have you come? You're here representing what part of the universe? From where do you come? Well, what's his answer? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it, back and forth on it. What does this language mean? Anybody here have a dog? Did your dog walk to and fro all over your property doing his business to mark off his territory? The devil's like that. This is language of ownership. The devil is saying, God is saying, from where do you come? And the devil is, Satan is saying, I come here as the representative head of the human race and planet Earth. Based on what premise? Well, who, you've been following the narrative, right? Who did God, to whom did God give dominion of the earth? Adam and Eve. Let them, who's them? Adam and Eve have what? Dominion over the earth, right? They, Adam and Eve, had dominion over the earth according to scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned, a transfer of power occurred. Planet earth, over which they had dominion, was given to a new invading foreign lord who now shows up in heavenly conclaves and says, I'm here representing planet earth. It was given to me. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth? He's blameless. He's upright. He's operating by my principles, not yours. He's one that fears God and he rejects evil. He resists evil. So what is God's retort to Satan's claim to planet Earth. No, Job's my man, not you. I have a human representative on Earth. That is who represents my character on Earth, not you. Satan makes this claim. So the war between good and evil is a territorial dispute, you guys. That's why Jesus, when he comes to the world and he talks about what he's going to achieve, he'll say things like, hey, when I'm all done with this, what I'm doing, the launching of my kingdom, when all is said and done, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's all coming back to you. I'm bringing the earth back under human dominion 
out from under satanic dominion. The war between good and evil is a territorial dispute. Planet Earth is in the crosshairs of satanic attack. Our world is a territory under dispute, and so God promises, I'm sending some offspring to the world to take it back. The original gospel promise is a declaration of war. I'm going to send through the womb of woman, I'm going to send someone as a replacement for Adam. And he's going to crush your head under his heel and be wounded in the process. So the biblical narrative makes complete sense then when it continues to unfold and we see that God, who just promised offspring, what did God just promise? Offspring. God enters into covenant promise with Abraham in order to establish a lineage, a lineage for offspring. Why does God call Abraham in Genesis 12 through 15? Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's the satanic offspring and lineage to form a covenant promise with Abraham. And he tells Abraham that what's going to happen in the world is that the promise is going to exceed and surpass just Abraham and his immediate offspring. You remember the promise of Genesis 12? In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm just using you as the conduit through whom to bring the offspring that is for everybody. Right? So a sonship lineage is established. With who? With Abraham. It's very important. Remember Abraham. Abraham is the one through whom God is going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. The offspring promise the new son of God that's going to be born into the world to conquer evil. And so then the story unfolds. And to make this shorter, I'm not going to tell you all the details of the story here. I'm simply going to say that there's Abraham and the offspring lineage, the sonship lineage is initiated with him. And Abraham has a covenantal son named Isaac. Of course, there was the Ishmael debacle but the son of promise, scripture says, is Isaac. Then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is actually the younger, not the older, and therefore by rights does not receive the sonship lineage promise to carry it forward. And that part of the story tells us that it's about covenant and character, not merely about genetics. The younger, Jacob, becomes the carrier of the covenant promise forward. From Jacob, there are 12 sons, and those 12 sons go into Egyptian bondage and grow into a nation called Israel. This is the fulfillment of the original covenant promise. This is God working out the promise of offspring toward the final and full realization of the second Adam the son of God that will be the new representative head of the human race in Adam's place. Adam ceased to reflect the image of God and thereby procreate the image of God. Jesus will come and perfect the image of God and pass it on to his followers, creating a whole new breed of humans. So, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, we've come Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. We're at the Israel part of the story. And notice here is, here is the origin of the language in the New Testament that some trip over and they don't know what it means in the New Testament. Well, here's the origin. Israel is my son. Israel the nation, God says, is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. This is God through Moses to Pharaoh. And God identifies Israel, the nation, as his son. The corporate body of Israel is the son of God, as Jacob was, as Isaac was, as Abraham was, as Adam was. The language is carried through. 
is he not your father? This is Moses talking to Israel and, and, and saying, listen, listen, you guys are rebelling against God. Is he not your father? This is the first time that God is referred to in the biblical narrative as father. This is the origin of the New Testament language that God is our father. Is he not your father, Israel, who bought you? He bought you, that is, he bought you by delivering you out of Egyptian bondage. With the blood of the Passover lamb, he bought you. Has he not made you and established you? Why, why are you turning away from him? Watch this. Don't, just be blown away by this. But they, that's Israel, the son of God, sacrificed to demons. As they came out of Egyptian bondage, they began to participate in demonic rituals. They began to sacrifice their children even to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know. New gods, new arrivals that your fathers, fathers did not fear. Who are these gods? Who, who, are, who are these new gods? These are demons masquerading as deities over the nations. The specifically named gods in the Old Testament, Molech, Dagon, Ishtar, Baal, to name a few, are all fallen angels masquerading as deities over people groups and prompting, Scripture says, detestable practices, even sacrificing their own children to these demon gods. And Israel begins, begins participating in all of this. And what does Moses do? Moses said, no, 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 you've forgotten who you are. You, Israel, you're the son of God. He's your father. You don't sacrifice to demons. Yahweh is your God. Yahweh is your father. You are the son of God. Stop these detestable practices because you have an identity that transcends all of this pagan ritual. The one and only true God is your God and he's your father. And he, according to the next passage, begot you. Here's the language of the New Testament. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, Israel, and have forgotten the God who fathered you. This isn't what I think this scripture means. This is what it means. Are you listening? In the context of the narrative, by the way, parenthetical statement, that's how we arrive at clear understanding of what any given passage of scripture means by letting the narrative, the story, interpret what it means in any given passage. That's why I can say with such clarity and authority, we know what this means. We don't have to guess what it means. We know what it means because this is language occurring in a narrative. God had a son, his name was Adam. Adam sinned, gave the world to Satan. Satan became the son of God over planet Earth by his, his misconceived claim over planet Earth. God said, but I'm sending through the woman's womb, I'm sending a begotten son who's going to conquer Satan, and I'm going to begin with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. Israel, corporate, is my son. I begot you, Israel. M meaning that God the Father has a female womb simultaneously to being depicted as a father? No. It's narrative. There is no mother figure. God begot Israel historically, specifically, by delivering Israel out of Egyptian bondage. That was the birth of the nation of Israel. Listen, Israel went as a ragtag group of desert nomads into Egypt and was born out of Egypt as a nation. Israel became a nation among the nations and was begotten to nationhood. That's what it means. And you're unmindful of the God who fathered you, fathered you by the Exodus, fathered you by delivering you from Egyptian bondage and, and making you his people, his nation, his covenantal people. That's what the 
story is telling us. So Moses tells Israel to summarize, God is your father. He fathered you by delivering you from Egyptian bondage, and you are God's only begotten son among the other nations. All the other nations are worshiping demon gods, demons masquerading as gods, practicing human sacrifice. You are pulled out from among the nations as a peculiar peculiar people that will not participate in those kinds of things because your God is good. Your God does not command human sacrifice. Your God is righteous and just. You'll be different from all of that. This is what Moses tells Israel. So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and then unfolds the story of the kings. And the first king of Israel was Saul. He botched the whole thing. He was the king because the people demanded a king. And then came David. Now, David continues the story. In Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. Messiah means anointed. This is David. David is writing this in Psalm 2 and saying, why are all the nations against God's anointed? I'm God's anointed. What does that mean, he's God's anointed? Watch this. Yet I have set my king, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Two things are happening here. Locally, historically, this is David. All the nations are warring against David and David says, but I'm God's son. I'm his begotten son. I am the continuation of the Abrahamic promise. Secondarily, this is a messianic prophecy that is giving us the language that becomes the language of John 3.16 and the Gospels. David is Messiah, lowercase m, over Israel, Symbolically, narratively pointing forward to Messiah, uppercase M, the offspring that was promised. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. This is David depicting his own perception that God is his father in the Israel lineage. And it's messianic, pointing forward to the fact that when Jesus comes, he will be the ultimate son of God that David was merely a type of, pointing forward to. Also, I will make him my firstborn. Who? David? Yes, David is his firstborn. Well, what about Saul? What about all the sons before? In fact, in David's own family, he was the lastborn. He was the runt of the litter. He was the little guy, and he had a bunch of older brothers. The point is the covenant. The covenant is to be carried on from generation to generation, and David is the firstborn covenant son of God among the sons of Jesse and Israel in the lineage of the kings. Saul doesn't even count. Technically, Saul is the first. Covenantally, David alone is accounted for. And he says very clearly, my mercy I will keep for him. That is God, I, Yahweh, will keep my mercy for him. That's David forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. That's David. And through David in Christ. So we have Abraham. We're moving through the biblical narrative. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, then Solomon. Who's Solomon? Solomon is the son of David, the king after David. And scripture uses the same language. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. Are you guys noticing a pattern here? The same language is used over and over again, whether we're talking about Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, now David, now Solomon. God is father over his son, 
And his son is who in the biblical narrative? Well, it's like a baton that's passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Israel to David to Solomon. Solomon is God's son. Within the biblical narrative, sonship is a covenant identity, not an ontological identity. It's not telling us anything about where Jesus came from way back in eternity past. The Bible knows nothing about that entire thought process. The Bible only knows that Adam was the son of God. He forfeited the sonship position. So God promised to intervene with a son that would successfully take back the world from Satan and give it to human beings all over again. That's the biblical story. That's the biblical narrative. For I desire steadfast love, God says in the biblical narrative. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. What does God want? What is God working out in history? The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's not looking for religious form and ceremony and religious rigmarole. He's looking for steadfast love. But like Adam, notice the language, it's referring back to Genesis 3. Like Adam, they, that's Israel, transgressed the covenant. Adam was in covenantal relationship with God. What was the covenant between God and Adam? I made you to be the carrier of my image and given you dominion over the earth. That was the covenant. Adam broke that covenant. So what is necessary? A new covenantal son that will keep covenant with God. This is what the Bible anticipates. Somebody's got to pull it off. Somebody's got to take the world back from demonic control. Somebody's got to conquer the invading enemy and take the world back as a representative of the human race, as a second Adam. And the whole story moves forward to that end. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. This is God's covenant promise. This is what's being worked out. The covenantal narrative of scripture. I'm giving you a sampling. Give ear and come to me and listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to who? To David. David is the carrier of the covenant promise. This is what the whole Bible is about. This is what the whole Bible is about. The word covenant is equivalent in these passages to faithful love, steadfast love. The, the, the Hebrew word that is used in every instance is hesed. It is the most frequently used word in the entire Old Testament to describe the identity, the character of God, hesed. Some 260 times plus, this word is used to describe the character of God. There's not even a close second. The whole Old Testament is about the hesed of God, which is to say the whole Old Testament is about the covenantal faithfulness of God to fallen humanity. The whole Old Testament is God saying, I love you and I'll never stop. That's the whole story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. Covenantal faithfulness from God to us, even though we've broken covenant with him. I love you, I'll never stop. The New Testament equivalent, the word that is used more frequently than any other word in the New Testament to describe the work of Christ is agape. It is the Greek equivalent of the concept of hesed. It is a faithful, unconditional love that no external circumstances can shake. It's called covenant. It's like a marriage covenant. It's like, I promise to love you until, my, until death do us part. That's a marriage covenant. It means I will be faithful to the end. This is what the Bible is about. The whole Old Testament screams through prophecy and, and through promise and through symbol and through narrative. The whole Old Testament screams, I am Yahweh. I love you. I am faithful. I'll never, ever, ever stop loving you. The whole New Testament is God saying, I'm here now in the flesh to prove the covenantal love that I promised to you through all the prophets. And Jesus is the embodiment of that promise, fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the 
covenantal son of God who keeps covenant with God where Adam failed, who keeps covenant with God where Abraham failed, who keeps covenant with God where Jacob and Israel and David and Solomon really blew it, failed. They all failed to keep covenant with God. You can't have, you know, 400 wives and 300 porcupines and, <laughs> and, not, and be faithful to God. Solomon was not faithful to God. But Jesus comes and Jesus is faithful to the covenant promise from Genesis 3.15 all the way forward. He fulfills all of it to the T. He is the only begotten son of God. And that's what the Bible means when it says he is the only begotten son of God. It is not trying to tickle our intellects with metaphysical ideas about the ontological origins of Jesus. None of that's there. The Bible knows nothing about those contemplations. That's Plato, that's Aristotle. That's the Hellenistic way of thinking, not the Hebraic way of thinking. So when we come to the New Testament, we encounter what the prophet Isaiah said we would encounter. God to the coming Messiah, Christ says, I, the Lord, that's Yahweh, have called you in righteousness to a righteous purpose, to a righteous task, and I will hold your hand. That's a tender moment between the Father and the covenantal Son. I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant to the people. This is why in Daniel 11, Jesus is called. He's not here yet. This is a prophecy pointing forward to it. When he comes, this is what you're going to encounter. He will be the prince of the covenant. That's his title. He is the one through whom the covenant faithfulness of God will be fulfilled and the covenant faithfulness of man to God will be fulfilled. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus fulfills the covenant in all directions. Omnidirectional. That's a new word omnidirectional. He is faithful to humanity as God. He is faithful to God as man, as human, and he is faithful to fellow humans as a fellow human. Jesus is faithful in all directions. <laughs> Jesus is the covenant-keeping God in the flesh. He's the prince of the covenant. Christ is the covenant son of God, the offspring promised to and through Eve. It's a, it's a narrative. It's a, tra a trajectory. It's an arc. The Abraham, he is the, the, the offspring promised to and through Eve. He is the Abrahamic son of God. He is the Davidic son of God. So in Matthew's gospel, when the gospel opens, how do we encounter this, this savior figure? How do we encounter Jesus? Look at the language. This is the book. This is verse one of the New Testament. The whole Old Testament has just unfolded and the opening verse of the New Testament, this is the book, the book of Matthew. You could say the whole New Testament. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, comma, the son of who? David, the son of who? Abraham. That's who he is. He's the covenantal son. And then chapter two, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, speaking of Jesus, the Exodus text that we quoted is quoted and now applied to Jesus. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. In the Old Testament narrative, God called Egypt out of, God called Israel as a nation out of Egyptian bondage. Yes, is that the narrative? Yes, now Jesus is new Israel. Jesus is new Israel. In fact, the, 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 the parallels are astounding. Jesus comes into the world. He's baptized by John the Baptist. And Paul says that that's equivalent to marching through the Red Sea in deliverance. After he's baptized, he goes and teaches on the side of a mountain, which is equivalent to Sinai. He's repeating Israel's history. And then he chooses not nine, not 13, but 12 disciples. He's reconstituting Israel. And Jesus is here to completely recapitulate the history of Israel with faithfulness. 
He is the son of God in the Israel sense, in the covenant sense. And suddenly, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is at the baptism. This is God's beloved son, God's covenant son. Who is he called in this context? The son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the covenantal son. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that that A shouldn't be there. He has helped his servant Israel. That is, Yahweh God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, that is, his said in the Hebrew equivalent, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. This is telling us who, Jesus, who is Jesus. He's the one that was promised through Abraham to perform the mercy, the hesed, the covenantal promise of God to our fathers and to remember his holy what? Covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham. Who is this? This is the son of Abraham. This is the son of David. This is the son of God. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now that we know the narrative, we know exactly what the tone is here. We know what the narrative grounding is. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What is the implication in the narrative context? Israel failed Abraham failed, Isaac failed, Jacob failed, David failed, Solomon, Adam failed. You, you've got this. I'm giving you to fulfill the covenant. You're the one in whom I'm well pleased. You will remain faithful to the covenant. You are the son of God in the Adamic line. And then, we're not surprised, when then the devil comes to him after his baptism in the Luke account, and taking him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. Why is Satan showing him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment? What do all the kingdoms of the world have to do with it? Watch this. And the devil said to him, all this authority, the kingdoms of the world, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I can give it to whoever I wish. What? If you don't know the background story, you can't make sense out of any of this. This is why we shouldn't be handing out New Testaments. You hand out a New Testament, what it's the opening, a person who's never read the Bible, like me. I was a secular kid, I never read the Bible. If you would have handed me a New Testament and I would have opened the New Testament and the first thing I, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, what am I thinking at that point if I'm firing on all cylinders? Who's David? Who's Abraham? What is this genealogy? I think I'm in the middle of a story. Where's the other part of this? I have no way of making sense of anything from Matthew forward if I'm not, new, if I'm not Old Testament literate. So, so when Satan comes to Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I can give it to you because it was given to me. You know now, because we've been spending time here looking at the, Who gave it to him? Did God give Satan the world? No. Who gave Satan the world? Adam and Eve gave Satan the world. And so the Bible then acknowledges that he is the ruler of this world, Satan is. He is the God of this age. He is the prince of the power of the air. That doesn't mean he's in charge of the oxygen supply, by the way. Unless you're in LA, where he is in charge of the oxygen supply. <laughs> It means, it means the air here is symbolic for the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the, the advertising industry. Our equivalent would be pop culture. He is the prince of the power of pop culture. The devil took the world from Adam and Eve. So when Adam and Eve sinned, it was a moral fall. We know that part of the story very well. Adam and Eve sinned, it was a moral fall. But the part that we haven't mastered so much is that because it was a moral fall, it was also a governmental fall. The world was given to satanic charge by its rulers, Adam and Eve. So when we come to the Gospel of John, 
And this is the homeward stretch here. If you're wondering, I have a minute and 46 seconds left on the clock, so I haven't gone over time. Okay. I told you this was a big bite. These are bite-sized blueberry muffins. Probably not a bite-sized blueberry muffin. This is like, this is like a pie or something. Okay. <laughs> I'm only doing this because you're here. Okay. This is John's gospel. We looked at Matthew, covenant narrative. We looked at Luke, covenant narrative. These gospels are telling us the story of the promise made to Adam and Eve and to the human race in Genesis 3.15, clearly. Now we come to John's gospel. He, that's Jesus, the Messiah, was in the world. This is the incarnation. Uh, strangely enough, though, the world was made through him. <laughs> He made it, and now he came into it as a part of it. And the world did not know him. The world that he came to didn't recognize him as its author, as its creator. He came to his own, that's Israel. And even his own did not receive him. Israel entered into collusion with Rome and crucified him. So he came to his own, his own didn't receive him. Watch this. But, qualifying statement, as many as received him, like Peter and James and John and Mary and, right, you and me, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right power, authority, is the word here in the Greek, to become what? The sons of God. Now, when you read this text, you're not automatically thinking, yeah, we're the sons of God. Sometime way back in the eternity past, God begot us. You know what it's talking about, don't you? Because you know the story. What's the story? You and I become, through Christ, the sons of God in the sense that Adam and Eve were the sons and daughters of God. The world is coming back to human charge, human control through Christ, right? He gives them the right or the power, the authority to resume our rightful position over the world. As the sons of God, to those who believe in his character, his name. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only, what's the language? Begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're in John chapter one. Where does the language come from? Exodus and Deuteronomy. We, all, we read all of it. John is not fabricating language He's lifting language from the narrative that is his heritage as a Hebrew. And he's importing that language into the New Testament to tell us who this Jesus character is. He is the begotten son of God like Israel was, like Abraham was, like Isaac and Jacob and Israel and David and Solomon and Adam reaching all the way back in the narrative. So Nathan... In verse 49 of John, we're still in John chapter 1. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. These are equivalent terms grammatically. To say Jesus is the son of God is not to say that he is the ontological, metaphysical son of of God sometime in eternity past, and that was the beginnings of his origins. Again, the Bible knows nothing about that way of thinking. The Bible is a narrative, not a philosophy. It's a story, it's not metaphysics. And in that context, when Nathaniel, who's a Hebrew, sees him, he says, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. You are the one that was foretold or represented or or symbolized in David, in Solomon, in all the lineage of the Israel, Israel's line. So then we come to our text. We're done right now, I promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now you know the whole story so we can interpret this. You know exactly what you're reading now. You're so biblically literate, you're just like full of the Bible. It's just on the tip of your frontal lobe. It's on the tip of your tongue. Now you know how to read this. Here it is, here it is. For God, that is the covenant-keeping God of Israel, 
so loved with the unfailing faithfulness of his covenant oaths, the world, that is the entire Hebrew and Gentile population of the earth that God told Abraham would be blessed through his offspring, that he gave his only begotten son, just as he promised he would do, as foreshadowed in Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, and Solomon, that whosoever, that is Jews and Gentiles alike, are now incorporated into God's new Israel through Christ. We're all Hebrews. If you, if you say right now, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. If you say, I believe Jesus is the Messiah of scripture, you're Hebrew, according to the New Testament. That whosoever, Jew and Gentile alike, can be incorporated into the new Israel through whoever believes in him as Abraham believed the covenant promise of God should not perish under the covenant curses stipulated by Moses, that's in Deuteronomy 28, 29, but have everlasting life as promised in the covenant blessings stipulated by Moses to inherit the earth. That's why a Seventh-day Adventist, by the way, we don't believe in this whole idea of dying and going to heaven. Heaven is not our home. We don't talk about going to heaven. As Seventh-day Adventists, we think in terms of a thousand years in heaven to work out some business and to have a grand therapy session with God where he'll finally wipe all tears from our eyes because it's going to be traumatic to review our whole history as a human race. But we believe that planet Earth is our eternal home. We speak of the new heavens and the new earth, and we believe that New Jerusalem, which is now somewhere in heaven, will be brought to earth and that God himself will dwell here on planet earth. Planet earth will become the center of God's universe so that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, so all flesh in the universe come to planet earth for a big Shabbat worship service because we're all Hebrews. And as the Jewish, as the Israel of God for all eternity, this earth will be the place where the promises stipulated in the covenant through Moses will be fulfilled. Every man, every woman under her fig tree and by her vine. God's ideal purpose is that everyone would be a property owner. That you would all, that all of us would have our plot. I'll be growing avocados for the guacamole and you'll be growing flowers and we'll barter. The whole world would be like a big hippie commune without marijuana. <laughs> I didn't make that up. That's in Isaiah chapter 11, by the way. Okay. Christ was and is the covenant son of God. That's the story of the Bible.